Well, even if you're not a Christian, I'm sure you've heard of the golden rule. You know how it goes. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And even for people who don't even believe in God, they still end up teaching their kids the golden rule. The saying, however, still came from Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 12. And everything, therefore, treat people in the same way you would want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. What's interesting is that in the verse right before that, Christ said this, Matthew 7, 11. He said, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? We fail to realize that before the golden rule, Jesus calls out the inherently evil hearts of men. And that's actually what makes the golden rule necessary. We, we are born with hearts that seek and serve only ourselves, even at the expense of others. And so left to ourselves, we're only going to serve ourselves. We're not going to look out for the interests of others. And this is why we have to be told to love our neighbors as ourselves, The point is that you already treat yourself good enough and look out for yourself just fine. If you just show that same level of care and concern for others, well, then you'd be fulfilling the intent of God's will for you. This is the golden rule, and it's meant to direct our actions. Now, you may have heard it said that this golden rule is not unique to Christianity. Some go so far as to say that Christ even borrowed it from the Eastern religions, And although there are some similarities, there are some differences as well. For example, Confucianism says, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Hinduism says, do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. And Buddhism says, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurt. These all sound similar, but did you notice the difference? Is that they're all in the negative. Don't harm others. Refrain from showing hatred to others because you wouldn't want people harming or hating you, would you? So just be passive. Do no harm. But Jesus taught something more, which is why his rule is referred to as the golden rule, and these are referred to as the silver rule. You see, it's not enough to just withhold hatred and harm from others, although that's good, but you need to actively treat others positively. You need to actively show them love in the way that you would want to be loved. So you might tell your kid, for example, and would you like it if someone stole the toy truck from your hands? No. Okay, so then don't steal from others. And when you put it that way in the negative, you'd be raising a child who would refrain from stealing. And that's a good thing. But you know what's even better? How about a child who not only doesn't steal, but who also shares? So how about you you phrase it in the positive? Would you like it if someone shared a toy truck with you when you had none? Well, then how about you go and do the same? This is why Christ's golden rule is better and that he made it about love. It's good not to hate people. It's better to actively love them. And Christ even took it a step further, telling us to love our enemies This this incorporation of self-giving love to others is truly unique to biblical Christianity. And it serves as a hallmark for those who are true Christians. This type of self-giving love for others tests and reveals true faith. Now, with all this in mind, how would you apply this to something like partiality or discrimination? 
Is that how you would want to be treated? Would you like for others to show you discrimination and partiality? Or instead, would you like for others to show you love, dignity, respect, irrespective of your appearance? When you put it that way, it's kind of a no-brainer. And if only more people truly followed Christ's golden rule, there would be a lot less unjust discrimination in our society. And it's to this effect, though, that James addresses us this morning. James, the half-brother of the Lord, he's going to draw on some of Christ's teaching to, to show us that the sin of partiality has no place in the church, especially since it violates this cardinal law of love. We're going to find this again from James 2, so you can open your Bibles now to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I've been gone a couple weeks, so we've been out of James for a couple weeks, so it's Probably fitting, we do a little bit of review to get us back up to speed. We just started into chapter 2 not too long ago. But the first half of the chapter is dominated by the same subject, which is partiality. The main command comes in verse 1, James 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Here, James is addressing the sin of partiality or favoritism in the church. And this sin consists of passing judgment on others simply based on how they look and thereby mistreating them or disrespecting them or or worse. And such discrimination is antithetical to our faith, we learned. And to illustrate this point, he builds a contrast in verses 2 and 3, followed by a conviction in verse 4. Look at verse 2. He says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? The answer to that question is yes. Yes, they have. Ethnicity, skin color, gender, wealth, social status, dress, physical appearance. All of these externals should have no bearing on how we treat others, especially in the church. We should show the same love and respect to all. Again, especially if we're talking about a fellow brother or sister in the church. But James is not done. He's made his point. In verses 1 through 4, he's convicted the church of a sin that should be removed wherever found. But he piles it on. And in verses 5 through 13, he adds this corroborating evidence. He's further driving home why partiality is wrong and why it should have no place in the church. And last time, if you remember, we started into this passage and we were seeking to find three reasons why partiality has no place in the church. Three reasons why partiality has no place in the church. And it really applies across the board, but James really focuses on the issue of social status and wealth. And so he tells us, number one, the first reason, partiality is inconsistent with God's choice of the poor. That comes from verse 5, where he says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. 
We learned last time that the poor are not more inherently righteous or spiritual. All are equally deserving of condemnation before God. It's just that the poor have already been humbled physically by life. And so there's a a much shorter distance for them to travel to be humbled spiritually before God, which is a chief requirement for salvation. And this just explains why in God's providence, the church has historically been mostly populated by the poor and the meek. It's just simply easier, humanly speaking, for the poor and the meek to deny self and follow Jesus. Accordingly, the the second reason partiality has no place in the church, this is all, I'm trying to do lightning review here. Second reason, number two, partiality is inconsistent with the hostility of the rich. This comes from verses six and seven. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? We give the gospel to the rich and to the poor, and and both the rich and the poor can be saved. But historically, you know, on the flip side of this equation, it's just historically been the case that the rich and the powerful have been the ones who have oppressed the church and persecuted the faithful. Of course, with exception, but James is just making a simple common sense point because of these realities. You know, why would you show favor to the rich over the poor. I mean, the, the poor person is more likely to be your brother, and the rich person is more likely to oppress you. So it just makes no sense. Now, James is not advocating some sort of reverse discrimination against the rich. It's not wrong to be rich or, or sinful in and of itself. He's just saying, though, that we should not mistreat or malign or disrespect the poor in favor of the rich. That was a real problem back then, as it is today. Okay, so that's enough for review. That's where we've been the past couple of times when I was here. And we come today to the third and final reason James gives why partiality has no place in the church. And this third reason is a big one. It really wraps up the whole discussion. He finishes it here. He drives it home. And this third reason is large enough. That's why we saved it for its own sermon. And so this is going to be technically reason number three. Partiality is inconsistent with the royal law of love. The third reason, partiality is inconsistent with the royal law of love. This comes now from verses 8 through 13, which is our text for today. And it really provides the most important reason why this this type of evil discrimination should not be found in the church. Simply that it violates the law of God. It violates the love command which as you know, Christ taught, summarizes or encapsulates all of God's laws for us in regard to one another. So this is, it's actually more serious than you think. And perhaps for the past couple of weeks, all this talk of partiality, discrimination, maybe seems like it's a minor insignificant issue to you, but not to God. We'll learn today there are no small violations of his law. And we're going to have to give an account before him. And so it's time for us to take seriously all that we've learned over these past weeks and and put this subtle sin of partiality and unjust discrimination to death. Now, these final six verses in this section, they've got their own internal logic and flow. 
James really develops this third point all on its own. And we're just going to follow along his argument along three lines. So technically, for all you note takers, these would be three sub points if you're kind of OCD about that. But let's just follow along these three arguments as to why partiality is inconsistent with the royal law of love. First, he's going to argue partiality is a real sin. In verses 8 and 9, partiality is a real sin. We'll read as we go, but let's read verses 8 and 9 of, of James 2 now. He says after this, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, James makes his point in these two verses with a pair of contrasting conditional statements. He says, if you're fulfilling the royal law, you're doing great. But if you're showing partiality, well, then you're, you're sinning and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. So like, it makes it pretty clear, pretty straightforward that partiality is a real sin before God. Again, you might not think of this as that big of a deal, but it kind of seems that way since James spends so much time on it. But a lot of people today don't pay too much attention to this, this issue, this, this sin. Showing partiality is just an accepted fact of life. It's one of those vices that is downplayed because you know, everyone does it. Everyone seems to show some form of discrimination against others who aren't like them. And so it's not that big a deal, right? But that's not right. The problem is that we can be so preoccupied with the the, the big issues or or maybe the big sins in our life that we fail to notice the smaller ones. They fly under the radar, but it's these these subtle sins that at at times can be all the more damaging to our lives. You can imagine a scuba diver swimming off the coast of Australia. He's touring the Great Barrier Reef and he's enjoying his dive, but then he sees a, a large shadowy object lurking in the distance soon becomes clear that it's a stalking great white shark. Your worst fear, right? If that were you, what, what would you do? Well, this, this guy knows at the very least he cannot take his eyes off the shark. That's the last thing you want to do is take your eyes off. His only hope is just to remain calm, slowly swim back to his boat, and just keep his eyes glued on the shark the whole time. I mean, he's got a spear gun, so at least he can try and, you know, defend himself a little bit. If he can just keep the shark in front of him, in his, in his field of view. So that's what he does. He slowly swims back to his boat. He's keeping the shark at bay. He's keeping his eyes fixed on the shark. But this diver was paying so much attention to the shark that he failed to notice the small, almost translucent box jellyfish in the water right next to him. And just as he was getting onto his boat, it stung him on the side resulting in excruciating pain. In a way, this is a fitting picture of the Christian life because we can spend so much time and focus on on the big sins, the great sins and dangers to our soul. And we'll avoid those like murder and adultery, theft, idolatry, immorality, drunkenness, and so on. You know, we we focus on these and we make sure like we're going to stay away from these big ones. We're, We're focused on them. And that's a good thing. 
But a little bit of success can give you a false sense of security as if what you, you've overcome all sin. But has your guard been lowered to the more subtle sins? And don't these small, almost you know, translucent sins that are right next to us, don't they tend to, to sting us the most and result in some real pain and, and hardship in life? Look, it's, it's obviously good not to be devoured by great sins, but you, you still have to be aware of those smaller, more subtle sins that can spring up right next to you. You have to watch out for them. Jerry Bridges wrote a book on this titled Respectable Sins, which is all about exposing and tr- confronting all those small, subtle sins that we tolerate in life and think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. No one really talks about it much. You know, sins like anxiety, discontentment, maybe a lack of self-control or impatience, judgmentalism. These sins often exist only in our hearts. No one else even knows we struggle with them. And they fly under the radar. They escape our attention in life. But these sins deserve a full share of your attention because they often produce the most harm. And here, James is adding partiality to that list. You can, you can throw this on there. This is one of those respectable sins, one of those subtle sins we tend to ignore. And you may not equate partiality with murder, but it's still a big deal, and it still can result in a lot of pain in people's lives. In fact, he says straight up in verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Word for sin, the common word hamartia, means missing the mark of God's righteous standard, falling short of what God expects and demands of you. And we learn back in verse 1, this sin involves passing judgment on others based on their external appearance, something superficial about them, and thereby mistreating them. And James highlights socioeconomic discrimination, you know, the rich versus the poor, favoring the rich over the poor. That was a big issue back then and still is today. We've, we really spent a lot of time on that last week or last time. But also quite common is racial discrimination. And this too was a huge problem in the ancient world. And what do you know, it still is today. It would have been another fitting application for James to make, seeing that his audience, this is the first epistle written, And his audience consisted primarily of Jewish Christians. They were just starting to wrestle with the influx of Gentiles into the church. That was kind of a problem for them. Because I I imagine most of you are aware of how Jews viewed Gentiles in the first century. Pretty much less than dirt. They were extremely racist. You know, God's law directed Israel to be set apart from the nations, but later rabbis changed and distorted and twisted that into just straight up outright racism against Gentiles. For instance, Jewish life was seen as more valuable than Gentile life. To murder a Jew carried the death penalty. To murder a Gentile did not. Also, there was no obligation to save a Gentile's life. If you saw a Gentile fall overboard into the sea... You didn't have to save them. Just let them go. One rabbi even declared, quote, the best of the Gentiles should be killed, end quote. Gentiles could be defrauded if you found a lost item belonging to a Gentile. You could just keep it. 
And Gentiles were not worthy of hospitality. In fact, God would be displeased if a Jew showed a Gentile hospitality the rabbis taught. You know, all this prejudice stemmed from this belief that non-Jews were not neighbors. They were outsiders. They were enemies. They weren't, they weren't in the people of God. Therefore, they weren't worthy of any respect or dignity. But as you know, Christ himself directly confronted this wrong type of discrimination and prejudice that sprung up within Judaism. He said in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Bible doesn't say that, by the way. The rabbis added that last part. But he said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Elsewhere, you know, Jesus also confronted the the racial partiality of the Jews in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Samaritans were, as you know, these half-breed Jews, and so they were hated and loathed by the pure Jews. But in this story, there's a man, he's beaten nearly to death. He's left for dead by the side of the road. And this supposedly righteous priest sees him, just passes by. A Levite, too, sees him, passes by. But it's the Samaritan who stops and sacrificially gives of himself to help the man. And Jesus taught this parable in response to a question. Someone asked him, who is my neighbor? And the answer he gave in the parable basically is anyone who's in need. And so you put it all together, you have these Jews. And in the first century, many of them came to Christ. They came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So now they're Jewish Christians. Christ is their master, and their master now is calling them to love their enemies and even to partner with Gentiles in this new thing called the church. But for these Jews who were raised their whole lives in a culture that trained them to hate Gentiles, you can imagine it it was hard for a lot of them this was a real struggle. They had lots of baggage. I mean, how could they accept these, these goyim, the, the, the filthy dogs, the, the Gentiles? Naturally, they could not do it. But supernaturally, by the renewing power of Christ through the indwelling Spirit, they could. Because the Spirit of God convicts us in our new hearts that there is, in the church, neither Jew nor Greek, Neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. This is the supernatural unity of Christ's church that bears witness to his name. And this unity must be preserved. That's really under all of what James is getting at here. So now it would be a good time. It would be right for you to search your heart. Is there some people group that perhaps you don't like. Maybe you were raised in a home or a culture that encouraged discrimination against a certain race, a certain gender, a certain social class like the rich or the poor. And so when someone like that walks into even our local church, perhaps a part of your heart prejudges them and and turns away from them because they're unlike you. But instead, you need to recognize this person is my neighbor. And my master calls me to love my neighbor as myself. 
And let that be your new knee-jerk response to all who enter. You know, back to James 2, and he says in verse 8 here, this thinking, it, it only aligns with the royal law, he says. This term royal law speaks of the, the supreme law. This is the law of the king. This law is what Jesus called the second greatest command, to love your neighbor as yourself. This law is actually found in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18. But Jesus taught that this command really captured the essence of all of God's commands for us in regard to one another, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love fulfills the law, the intent and the heart of God's law. Listen to Romans 13, 8 through 10. Paul taught the same thing. He says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So just take that right there and apply that to discrimination in the church. Remember, James used the example of a poor man entering the church dressed in rags, and he is disrespected and maligned and, and said, you know, get out of the way, sit in the back. Is that doing no wrong to a neighbor? Is that how you would want, maybe you, you invited your literal neighbor to church? Is that how you would want them to be treated? Maybe you will go on vacation, you visit another church, is that how you would want to be treated and received into a local body? Or would you like to be welcomed and loved, irrespective of your appearance as just a brother or sister in Christ? And so the point is now obvious. It's just up to us to to do the same. Discrimination and partiality are the way of natural man, not just in America, every culture in every age has been guilty of this unjust partiality because it's just inherent in the sinful and selfish hearts of man. But the redeemed and the renewed church is to be different. And so let's be different. Point number one, this first argument that partiality is a real sin. And so, of course, put it away from you. If you show such favoritism, he says, you're guilty before God. You've become a transgressor of the law. Now, you may notice he's got a lot to say about the law in this passage. And this leads to a second point, a second argument he develops. Number two, partiality makes you a lawbreaker. Partiality makes you a lawbreaker. This comes from verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 10. He said, forever or for whoever keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And James is continuing to support his main point here, and that is that partiality is a serious problem in the church. He does so by adding that, look, it's a real sin, and it it makes you a lawbreaker. Like he said at the end of verse 9, you are convicted under the law as transgressors. And so, This is more than a little deal. This is becoming more of a big deal. 
to, to show partiality. How would you define a criminal? We think of criminals as those who are well, guilty of a crime, they get arrested, they go to jail. But that's not you, right? You're not a criminal. And maybe, okay, you might jaywalk every now and then or speed, but it's not like you're getting arrested and going to jail for those crimes. So you're not really a criminal. That's for, you know, the bad people. So you're not a lawbreaker. But when it comes to God's law, it doesn't work like that. So James is anticipating an objection here. And surely these Jewish Christians would think of themselves as law keepers. They didn't murder. They didn't commit idolatry or adultery or they didn't steal. They kept the vast majority of the law. So, you know, what if they showed a little partiality every now and then? If you keep 99% of the law and just, you know, violate here and there these insignificant commands, what's the big deal? I mean, they're, they're, still, they're still good. They're not criminals. That doesn't make you a criminal or a lawbreaker, does it? James is going to argue, though, that yes, yes, it does. God's law does not operate entirely like our law. And for one, the point that James makes in verse 10 is that God's law is a unified whole. God's law is a unified whole. So even if you kept every single law in the book and you stumble in just one little point, you still incur the guilt of the whole thing. You are condemned as a lawbreaker. Now, of course, he's speaking hypothetically because it's not even possible to keep the whole law. But he's making a clear point that even if somehow you kept every single commandment of God, but then you, you fell short with the spiritual equivalent of jaywalking, well, you would still be considered before God a criminal, a lawbreaker, and a transgressor. And incurring such guilt, you would still be under the penalty of eternal death. So violating any of God's laws, it sounds pretty serious. And if you were to walk into an antique store and knock over a glass vase, you'd have to pay for it. Pay for just the vase. That's how our law works. You pay for what you break. Whatever law you break, you have to pay for that law. But in God's law, if you break any part of it, again, you incur the guilt of the whole thing. So God's law is more like a a window pane that if you break even a little part of it, you've got to replace the whole thing. You have to pay for the whole thing. If you don't understand why this is, look at verse 11. Verse 11, he says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now here, James is using the two most extreme examples of sin to show the absurdity of inconsistent obedience, as if you can obey one law and violate another with impunity. It doesn't work like that. But what's the key phrase in verse 11? Can you tell? It really boils down to this. He who said. He who said. You see, when it comes to God's law, the issue is not quite the law itself, but the lawgiver. So when you violate his laws, you're not so much violating individual laws, these separate commands. 
No, rather, you are violating the unified will of the lawgiver. You are defying the lawgiver. That's the real issue. And that's why it doesn't matter where you violate or how you violate or how much you violate. To violate any command is to disobey and dishonor God himself. And that makes you guilty in his eyes. You're a criminal. You are a law breaker. And you realize that to God, all sin is personal. It's not that way for us with our law. Like if you were to jaywalk on an empty street, no cars around, no one would get hurt, no one's offended, no one really cares. But before God, any sin or violation is personal because we are his personal creation made in his image, directed by his will. But when you go against that will in any place, it's a personal affront against him. All sin is rebellion, where we are, in effect, you know, thumbing our nose against our creator. And this is why no sin, or rather any sin, no matter how small, incurs an eternal debt and guilt before God, who himself is eternal in holiness and majesty. Most people don't like to hear this. They like to think of themselves as, you know, pretty good people, not like they're murderers. But God's law just doesn't work that way. You violate any part of it, you're guilty. You'll be found guilty. You'll be condemned guilty as a law breaker. Scripture teaches that all sin is deadly. Anthrax, strychnine, nerve gas, cyanide. I'm sure you've all heard of these deadly poisons, right? You can add to that batrachotoxin. I think that's how you pronounce it. That's the poison dart frog. That just one touch is enough to kill two dozen people. There's ricin. That's a poison derived from seeds that can kill with a dose of just the size of a grain of sand. But the most potent and toxic element we know is polonium. Being radioactive, it can kill in a dose of just seven trillionths of a gram. Now, what do these poisons all have in common? They'll all kill you. They may be of different potency. Some may be more potent than others, but they'll all kill you. So what does it really matter? And think of sin the exact same way. It's true. Some sins are more potent than others. They have greater fallout than others, but they'll all kill you. They all will incur guilt before God. And so we can bring it back to the main point now, which is the sin of partiality. And the point is that the sin of partiality may not be like polonium, you know, the worst sin in the book, but it's still a transgression of God's law. And therefore it still incurs full guilt before him being infinitely holy. And again, you may not think it's, it's that big of a deal because you keep so many other commands, right? But to transgress any of God's laws is to go too far. That's what transgression means, by the way, to go too far. Sometimes we speak of sin as missing the mark. We've fallen short. Other times we speak of sin as transgressing, meaning to go too far, to go outside of God's bounds. And so transgressing God's law, it's like stepping off a cliff. It doesn't matter if you take a giant leap or a tiny step, you've still fallen off a cliff. You've gone too far. 
And such is the sin of partiality. If this is you, well, you have transgressed the will of God. You've become a lawbreaker. And as such, point number three, partiality will be judged. He concludes his argument by reminding us that partiality will be judged. Verses 12 and and 13. Look at verse 12. He says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. All who are guilty of the sin of partiality will be judged by God and held accountable by God. But not in the way you might think. It's going to take a little bit of clarification. You know, this whole text, James has referenced the law quite a bit right? He's using God's law to drive home his case that partiality has no place in the church. But you might be thinking this whole time, like, wait a second, I thought as Christians, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. So why does he keep talking about the law? What is our relation to the law? I'll give you the the short version explanation. I just might give you the long version explanation next week. We'll see. But first and foremost, Understand that our relation to God's law has changed. The law is no longer to us a curse. If you were to stand before God based on nothing but his law, you'd be cursed. Why is that? Well, Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So do you perfectly keep all of God's laws all the time? No, none of us measure up to that standard of perfect righteousness. We all transgress, therefore we're all guilty and we come under the curse of the law, which is punishment, eternal death, separation from God. And this is why also no one can be justified or made right with God through the law. You're a transgressor, you've already broken it. You have to keep it perfectly, and we we can't do that. So no flesh will be justified by the law. And if if that's all you got, if you just remain under the law, well, then you're, you're cursed. You're under the curse, and you have no hope. But there is good news, he says afterward in Galatians 3.13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus came and took the penalty of the law on our behalf on himself. He bore that curse, the wrath of God due our sins, to offer us forgiveness and eternal life. And so now only by going to Jesus through faith and faith alone, apart from the works of the law, can you be justified by God. And that's how we're made right with God. These gifts of forgiveness and eternal life, they come not by merit or works, but by grace, God's unmerited grace. And that's why Paul says in Romans 6.14 that it's true. We are no longer under law. We are under grace. If you understand that, though, there's, there's still balance because it does not mean now we're a lawless people. To say we're no longer under law, but grace is true. But at the same time, we are not lawless. Because in another sense, we are still directed by God's laws. That law has changed, though. And now 
We refer to it as the law of Christ. The law of Christ. That's what James is talking about, which is what he calls the royal law, the law of liberty, or back in chapter 1, verse 25, the perfect law. We are no longer under the law of Moses. That's the Old Testament law corresponding to the old covenant. That law was fulfilled by Christ and replaced for God's people. And so we're no longer under the jurisdiction of that law with all of its rules and regulations. But we still have a law, though. God's will codified that directs our actions. That now is the law of Christ, which corresponds to the new covenant. And this law captures the essence of God's will for his creatures, which is what? Love. This law has just two main commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if this kind of makes sense to you, let's try and bring this to bear in our discussion in James 2. You read this verse again, verse 12, and notice this whole passage, he's actually never referenced the law of Moses. Because when he says law here, he's not talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the royal law, the perfect law, the new covenant law of Christ. That's the law we are under. And that law is meant to guide and direct our actions. We will be judged by that law. So now we can read again verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. It doesn't say it will be judged by the law of Moses. We won't. But by the law of liberty. Because he's speaking to people who are no longer under law, but who are under grace. So what does this all mean to to put it together? It means that as Christians now, we will still be judged. We will be held accountable for all of our actions, but not in respect to salvation. Like Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what comes with the new covenant, forgiveness. We have passed out of death and judgment into life. This law of liberty has set us free from the law of sin and death. And so as Christians, we will never know judgment in respect to our salvation. We are forgiven. We are saved. But we will all still stand before Christ in a type of judgment. Scripture speaks of this as the judgment seat of Christ, which is only for believers. And there our deeds will be examined, not in respect to redemption, but in respect to rewards. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And this is the judgment of which James speaks. You will still have to account for all of your deeds done in the body. James, in fact, will speak of this judgment later on in chapter 3, verse 1. Remember where he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur what? A stricter judgment. So how you live still matters. Yes, we are saved by grace, grace rather, and nothing can change that. But how you live still matters. You will still stand before your master. You'll still give an account of all that you say and do. And everywhere in scripture, this is meant 
for one purpose, and that's to spur us on to holy living before our master. And here, James brings us up to spur you on to love, to not show partiality, to remove it from your life. This sin, it's just not fitting the law of Christ. It's inconsistent with the gospel, and it's going to be called into account. Do you need more reasons? He's piled up the argument. It will be judged. Now for our final word in verse 13. He says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James closes the subject of partiality with a very broad statement that evokes Christ again. Like Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, there are some so-called Christians who they don't measure up. They, they show partiality. They show discrimination. They, they, have no la- they have no love for others. And that's the character of their life. That, that's just who they are without repentance, without change. And what James is saying is that reveals an underlying heart that has never been made new or come under grace. Such a life where, where so much discrimination is shown, for example, reveals a heart that still lives in rebellion against God. So the person who shows no mercy to others will not receive mercy, meaning they're not under God's mercy. They're still under God's wrath. This is not to suggest we can earn mercy by showing mercy. That's not possible just based on the definition of mercy. But the person who characteristically shows no mercy like this merely reveals that he has not yet truly received God's mercy. Because when you receive God's mercy, it it changes you. It supernaturally changes you where you cannot help but show mercy to others now. You know, in salvation, you come to realize, now who was I before God? I was no neighbor. I really was his enemy, a rebel, a criminal, a lawbreaker. But he still showed me love and mercy by sending Christ to die in my place. And so how can I not show even a small measure of love and mercy to others? And does this resonate with you? Receiving mercy compels us to show mercy. But the point is that if such mercy and love for others, if they're just characteristically missing from your life, well, then it likely shows you've never come to actually know God's saving grace and mercy. But thankfully, mercy triumphs over judgment, he says. This is true for God, that for those in Christ, we deserve judgment, but we get mercy. And the obvious implication here is that we should reflect such mercy in our lives. There may be others in your life, in this church, who you think they don't, they don't deserve good treatment from me. But how about instead you, you show mercy instead of judgment? How about you reflect the heart of God and love of Christ by showing others, even your enemies, what God showed you? Mercy and grace. This includes showing love and dignity and respect to all, even in the church. And it, it includes showing no partiality. So examine your lives now. Examine your conduct Let this main command resonate with you in the law of Christ. James 2, verse 1. 
My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. They, they just don't go together. And so fulfill the heart of God's law for your life, the royal law of love and love your neighbor as yourself. Show all who enter here the love of the Savior. And let the world know that, that it's the church of Jesus Christ. That's the place, the only place where true love is found and where meaningful unity exists. Let that be our testimony. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for being our, our gracious Heavenly Father, a Father of, of mercies. As we sang earlier this morning, your mercies are new every morning, and we thank you for that, Lord. We, we need your mercies every single morning. We are a fallen and sinful people. We have all transgressed, gone too far against your holy will, and incurred debt, guilt, judgment that we deserve. But you, Lord, that the Father of mercies sent Christ, your only son, to, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, to bear the full weight of the curse of the law for us, that we could be forgiven. Lord, we remember your mercy this morning and how we have received so much, none of which we deserved. And we will celebrate that mercy eternally. Now, Lord, I pray this, this truth convicts us and, and transforms us by the Spirit continually to, to now do the same, that we are called to reflect your heart of mercy, which triumphs over judgment and how we treat others. Our flesh, our sin, our, our hearts, our conditioning compels us to, to show others discrimination, to treat people different because they look different, to be selfish, to look out for ourselves. But none of this has a place in your church, a body of people made new and, and being renewed into the image of Christ. And so renew us, Lord. Continue to transform us, to make us more like him who loved his enemies and even gave up his life for them. May this characterize us in this church and in all your churches that the world would truly know that the, the supernatural love and unity, it only comes from you. And so it may be found here as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.